Welcome to Modern Food Thinking. This is your host, Chef Jerome Picca, along with co-host Rachel Lucas, owner of Fueling Strong. This show is brought to you by Spazio Rosso Interior Design, and here we present to you our unique perspectives on food as it relates to health and wellness. In today's show, we will be talking about fats and their lipid constituents. Don't get scared by the fancy terminology because Rachel and I will break this all down for you. Rachel, you and I both understand the necessity for certain fats and also the amounts of fats a person may need as a regular part of their daily eating regimen. In a previous podcast episode, we talked about sugar and how unused fructose in table sugar is easily converted to stored fat in our bodies. Today, however, we are going to talk specifically about fats ingested directly, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And yes, I actually cooked for Clint Eastwood as his personal chef for a week, and no, I did not use any of the bad fats. Now, if you're under the age of 50, you might not even know what I'm referring to, but trust me, that was a great movie. Look it up, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly with Clint Eastwood. In addition to the obvious need for fat as a source of fuel and insulation for the body, let me just say that we also need fats to metabolize for essential vitamins. And here's where I get a little bit scientific. Uh, As many of our listeners know, I love to talk about the science of food. So vitamin A, D, E, and K. These are the fat-soluble vitamins our bodies need for eye health, hair growth, bone health, maintaining a strong immune system, prevention of oxidative stress, and proper blood clotting, which is coming from your vitamin K. Uh, You don't need to memorize this. Again, I'm not going to test you. I will point out, however, that fats can be found in all foods and animal meat products, with vitamin A being obtained primarily through animal meat products, although a small portion of uh, vitamin A can be found in uh, carotenoid antioxidants in plants. This is one of my favorite topics. I love talking about dietary fat with my clients uh, because unfortunately we do live in a very fat phobic society and I'm going to give everyone uh, my history lesson for the day because we got here for a very specific reason and it's not because fat is bad for you. So back in the 50s, there was a researcher named Ansel Keys and he published a study called the Seven Countries Study. So Key's Seven Countries Study began in the 50s and was first published in 1978. The study examined the relationship between diet and heart disease. Ansel Keys reported that in all countries he investigated, high levels of dietary fat were associated with higher levels of heart disease. The problem with that sort of blanket statement that he came out with is that he studied over 20 countries and reported on only seven that fit into his hypothesis, his his hypothesis being dietary fat causes heart disease. He also ignored the fact that the seven countries he focused on were just starting to be influenced by Western diets, meaning that they were adding more sugar and more simple refined carbohydrates into their diet as well. Unfortunately, big box companies that were producing grains and sugar saw how they could benefit from a fat phobic society. If you're eating less fat, you're eating more carbs. And they took his research and hurled enough money behind him to keep publishing it and keep it in the forefront of nutrition literature and nutrition research. And people believe what they hear. Uh, A lot of 
nutrition studies aren't held to the same standards as a lot of other research, which is why there's so much conflicting and bad information out there. Um, you know, most scientific studies are held to high standards of ethics and research. And unfortunately with nutrition, because there's so many other factors that come into play, they can get away with a lot of bad research. And a little book recommendation, which I will do constantly. Most people don't take me up on my offer, but if you're really interested in the whole story of Ansel Keys and how we became such a fat phobic society, I would strongly suggest reading the book titled The Big Fat Surprise. And I apologize to the author. I'm going to butcher her last name. Her first name is Nina. Her last name is Tacoles, I think. So Nina Tacoles, the book is called The Big Fat Surprise. It's an awesome book if you are into the history of how we got to where we are today. Rachel, let me let me just add something here. I, you know, we, we don't practice what we're going to talk about and, and discuss it beforehand. And the fact that you're bringing this up to me is super impressive. I read that book about 10 years ago and maybe less. I'm not sure when it was published, but to me, my recollection recollection is 10, 10 years ago. And and based on what I read from this book, I did some more research into uh, Dr. Benjamin Ansel Keys, and I, I, I would often cite his work as bad science when I had my restaurant and I was answering questions to people who were asking the deeper nutritional questions that they had on their minds. And I would I would cite this bad science by Dr. Benjamin Ansel Keys. Uh, it was it was very very. Uh, politicized because he was using his research to promote his own career, basically, rather than help the American public. But I seem to recall certain things about his history based on this book that I read so many years ago uh, and how fascinated I was by it. But if I'm not mistaken, he went on to become the head of the National Institutes of Health, perhaps, uh, or the CDC. Not sure, but he he became very prominent in in uh, the politics of medical science in America, and to me, my big takeaway from from reading about him was that how much damage one one person could do to a nation and generations of people who listen to bad advice, listen to the bad commentary. And too bad we didn't have Twitter back then, because who knows what further damage might have been done to the country. But moving on from bad commentary by one bad actor, let me just say that I know there's a lot of confusion with people regarding trans fats, hydrogenated fats, saturated fats, omega-3 fatty acids, and a whole litany of complex and confusing names. So to simplify this message for our listeners, my advice is to stay away from hydrogenated fats. This is a liquid fat that contains extra hydrogen molecules. Again, I'm getting into the science. You don't need to memorize this. But hydrogenated fats are very bad. It paves the way for free radicals, which are unattached oxygen atoms that cause tissue and organ damage to populate your body. And a lot of people don't know what it, they, they use these words freely, free radical. What's a free radical? What's an antioxidant? Okay, so now you know what a free radical is. But how do you know if a fat is hydrogenated? And that's fairly easy, actually. If it's almost solid at room temperature, then it is hydrogenated. One caveat to that is 
coconut uh, oil, which when it's on the cooler side, it tends to be firm. But at normal room temperature, it is liquid. This is not a hydrogenated product. That is its natural state. So don't get confused when you see a jar of coconut oil and it's fairly solid. It is not a hydrogenated fat. Now, saturated fats, on the other hand, are another term for hydrogenated fats. In other words, they are the same. And so far, this is easy to understand, right? Hey, I'm just kidding. I know it's not easy. Stay away from using solid fats or anything cooked in solid fats and you'll be much better off. Although I have to say recent research has been uh, indicating that perhaps butter is not all that bad for you, but let's stay away from that because the, the research is ongoing. And Rachel, when we when when I'm done rambling and ranting, <laughs> I'll let you uh, weigh in on that because you probably have some opinions about it too. But um, let's get back to the science discussion. So what about trans fats? Again, it's the same thing by another name. The word trans refers to transfer the transference of uh, hydrogen atoms into oil by trapping them, usually using a combination of heat, pressure, and, and some chemicals. So to simplify the message, stay away from any foods that use or are cooked in these fats. Consuming these fats will certainly raise your high-density lipoprotein levels, also known as LDL cholesterol, which is the bad cholesterol. And high levels of bad cholesterol uh, raises blood pressure and can definitely lead to heart disease and strokes. So although not all uh, fat is bad for you, fat is necessary for good health care because it helps uh, certain compounds and micronutrients pass through cell walls where the body can metabolize them. It's important to just simply understand what we're trying to uh, educate you about. Rachel, if you want to take over with your thoughts about uh, fats. Yes. First of all, we do need to understand how beneficial fat is for our body. If you've ever been on a low-fat diet, especially I find this to be really true with women, it tends to be really detrimental to your hormonal health. All of our sex hormones, testosterone, estrogen, progesterone, are built from fat and cholesterol. So if you've removed all of that from your diet, those hormone levels are going to get severely messed up and result in a lot of issues. One of the things I see a lot of in my female clients going through menopause is a lot of them grew up in the age where fat was first being um, vilified. So they're very fat phobic. They don't want to include dietary fat. They're going through menopause. They're having horrible menopause symptoms and they're dealing with a huge amount of excess body fat and they have no idea what to do. Most of these women are in a calorie deficit and it comes down to they need to increase their dietary fat to help balance out their hormones while they're going through this difficult time. And then they, they end up losing weight by increasing the amount of fat they're eating, which sounds confusing, especially if the concept that we're talking here is new to you. If you're still feeling very fat phobic, the idea of eating more fat to lose body fat can sound really foreign. It does work though, for lots of different reasons. Uh, the main one being, especially again, for, for women of all ages, but especially women going through menopause is to help balance out those hormone levels. The other side of things that I want to talk about. So we talked about the less healthy hydrogenated and trans fats. I also like to caution clients to stay away from highly processed seed and vegetable oils. Uh, for instance, safflower oil, canola oil, soybean oil, those are 
highly processed through crushing and mixing with chemicals to create that oil. They're also unstable when they're cooked with, so they can wreak havoc on your system when consumed. We've talked in previous episodes, and I'm sure we'll talk again, about the importance of eating real whole foods. You want to ensure that you're cooking with real whole fats as well. As a man, I didn't know that about uh, the effect on, on women and menopause. So that's interesting to me to, to understand as, uh, as somebody who's trying to help educate the public about healthy eating. I'm glad you brought it up. Thank you very much. Of course. I have an email. Yeah, I have an email here, Rachel, that came in from uh, Lou in Bolton, Massachusetts. And he says, hi, I'm Italian. I love to cook for my wife and myself. I am wondering what good what good fat suggestions you might have for cooking, uh, which is a great question because I'm guessing he probably is using some of the fats that you talked about and some of the oils that you talked about not to use and some of the ones that I talked about, such as canola oil or sunflower oil. And my recommendation is going to be for Lou and his uh, cooking at home. You're Italian. Go for the olive oil. But let me throw in a caveat. As a, as a chef, I can tell you that using olive oil is great overall. It has a very low smoking point, especially extra virgin olive oil, true extra virgin olive oil, not, not the fake stuff that you, you find on, on the supermarket shelf for you get two, two for a dollar sort of thing. That's not extra virgin olive oil. Come on. But if you, if you get a, a, a proper extra virgin olive oil, we, my wife and I just received over Christmas a shipment of three bottles that came directly from a vineyard. It, it olives pressed uh, about two weeks prior, and the uh, olive oil filtrate filtrated. So it's a very long, slow process of filtration. And we received it three days after they bottled it, and that is only used as as a seasoning, as a as a addition to to a dish. Never, never use that for cooking. For cooking itself, you want to use the less expensive versions, which would be a second or a third press, or even a slightly heated pressed olive oil. So heat, adding a little heat when olives are pressed gains you a little bit more of the oil. Uh, it, it does destroy some of the antioxidant benefits of the oil itself, but, but that slight loss is insignificant compared to the health gain. So my advice to you, Lou, is go with, with olive oil. If you're doing searing or, or pan frying, roasting, any of that sort of thing, then use a, a, a virgin olive oil as opposed to extra virgin olive oil. If you're making a salad dressing, you're just topping off a little bit of oil on your pasta, for example. And uh, I say that with some hesitation because in a future episode, we'll talk about flour and gluten and, and pasta. But for now, I'm, I'm guessing as an Italian, you're probably eating pasta. That's where you, your extra virgin olive oil comes into play. Now, I also like I also like to use coconut oil in cooking. Now, I did talk, talk about coconut oil at room temperature is generally liquidy, but as it cools off a little bit below room temperature, it starts to get a little bit more firm. But I like to use it in baking. It's great in baking. Not so great for sauteing and, and and uh, stir frying and that sort of thing. But I, I definitely like to use it in, in baking. And one of my more popular uh, baked goods that I would make at Mighty Love Food was uh, a, 
uh, muffin that we called the Mighty Muffin. It was the only breakfast food that we sold that you could take with you. And we didn't carry a variety of muffins, for example. It was the Mighty Muffin. It had everything in it, 23 ingredients, <laughs> not included in our homemade granola. So we added the homemade granola. We jumped up to about 28, 29 ingredients. And uh, coconut oil was the only fat that was in there. And I know you you have your own thoughts about oils that uh, are good for cooking and things that you like to use, Rachel. Yeah, so I love to cook with olive oil. And I'm on board with, um, you know, the conversation of the extra virgin versus virgin olive oil. It can get a little bit confusing for people, which I also understand. I think the the big takeaway or the big thing that I want to, I always try to remember when I'm cooking myself is that you never want to burn the oil that you're cooking with. Olive oil has a low smoke point. So you want to be mindful of that when you're cooking with it. I also cook a lot with ghee, which is a clarified butter, uh, meaning it's processed to remove all of the milk proteins that the processing is just you cook it. And when, when you cook butter, when you cook it or when you heat it up, the milk proteins float to the top. You scoop those off. What's left over is the clarified butter that actually increases the smoke point of the process. So butter has a low smoke point. Ghee has a much higher smoke point. So it's a little bit better for cooking at higher temperatures. Uh, another one that I recommend, and I'm interested to hear your thoughts on this, is avocado oil. So I don't react very well to avocado oil myself, so I actually don't cook with it. I used to recommend it all the time. And more recently, I've heard some very controversial things on the quality of avocado oil and the processing of the avocado oil and taking, um, you know, some some researchers have taken shelved avocado oil and looked at the components and it's turning out to be like less than 50% actual avocado oil. It's mixed in with all those other less healthy vegetable oils and seed oils. So I don't know if you have any thoughts on that specifically. Oh, absolutely. There's, there's so much fake stuff out there. It's like trying to buy a Gucci bag for, uh, you know, $50. It, it just doesn't happen. That's a knockoff. There's so, the, the market for knockoff foods is huge. You have to be very careful about what you're purchasing. Uh, I like your point about ghee. I was born in Sri Lanka, which a lot of people don't know. My family grew up eating a lot of Indian foods and Sri Lankan foods, and ghee was the go-to fat. It was in everything. It was almost the only type of fat used in the house. So if we weren't spreading butter on our, on our uh, English muffins in the morning or toast in the morning, um, I was I grew up in England, even though I was born in Sri Lanka. But if we weren't spreading toast butter on our toast in the morning, that butter was turned into ghee. And ghee actually, once once you make ghee the proper way, it can store for years without turning rancid, which is not the case for whole butter, and not the case for uh, certain oils. The one thing that I would would say is that uh, regarding your points about avocado oil, I don't use it for cooking at all either because I just don't trust it for the for the reasons that you brought up. I do, however, love eating avocados, and we will talk a little bit about uh, the fats that you can find in foods, natural foods. Avocado being one, uh, you know, egg yolks. You know, some of these come come to mind, but uh, I think it's important that we jump over to as we're discussing avocado oil and what was what these scientists found after looking at the oil sitting on a shelf for, for a long period of time is the importance of uh, 
reading ingredients labels. Now, we did talk about this in a previous episode. We're going to come back to this. Uh, re- uh, listeners, we can't impress upon you enough how important it is to read ingredients labels. And Rachel, I know you have uh, some thoughts on that. Yeah. So the first thing I want to note on is beware of the kind of taglines on foods. So we live in a fat phobic society. You'll see something and it says in big bright letters, fat free. And so your eyes get drawn to that and you think, oh, it's fat free. It must be healthy for me. Which first of all, not necessarily true. Second of all, you can put fat free on a label of something that should never have fat in it in the first place. So for example, one of my clients had a bag of rice cakes. This is probably two years ago because um, back before we were all locked down. Um, But she comes in with this bag of rice cakes and I see in like bright yellow letters, fat free. And I'm thinking rice cakes. Well, rice is a naturally fat free food. And as far as I understand, there'd be no added fat into a rice cake. So why would you put that on a label? And the answer is to get people to buy it, to think it's a healthier food, to make you grab it off the shelf. So I think my first kind of cautionary woe is beware of of those popular phrases stuck on a label for no real reason. Another thing I wanted to touch on is low-fat foods or fat-free foods that are supposed to have fat in them. So I'm going to use dairy. I'm going to use yogurt specifically, all dairy, as an example. So there's, there's natural fat that occurs in all dairy. If we remove all the fat from your dairy, you're an, allowing the naturally occurring carbohydrates and sugars to get into your system with no speed bumps or slowdowns. So one of the things dietary fat does is slow down the absorption of the other food that you're eating at the same time, which is great for feeling full. Also great for helping keep your blood sugar levels stable is that slow absorption of the food that we are eating. And I want to tell um, a little story and I'll try not to digress too much. Uh, my dad is a type one diabetic, meaning that his pancreas does not secrete any insulin on his own. He is in charge of checking his blood sugar levels, managing his blood sugar levels and dosing himself with insulin. He is also, uh, or he was before he retired a mechanical engineer. So he's got a very scientific analytical brain. Great for me and all my nutrition questions. So I tell you this because back in September, my dad decided to do a Whole30. Part of the Whole30 is excluding all dairy. Now, my dad's been putting 2% milk, 1% or 2% milk in his coffee for the last 50 years of his life. But he agreed, I'll cut it out for 30 days. Like I said, he's a, he's a scientific guy. He wanted to see what would happen with these dietary changes. So he removed his dairy from his coffee. And within a couple of days, he reports back to me that his blood sugar wasn't rising in the morning like it was before, meaning the low fat dairy, because the fat has been removed, will cause your blood sugar levels to increase more so than a, a different uh, creamer option in your coffee or a full fat option. So the result is more insulin being produced and ultimately stored as body fat, um, excess insulin in the body is always stored in or as body fat. And I think there's a really important takeaway from this, 
which is that we need fat to slow down the absorption of other foods in our body. Without fat, especially carbohydrates and sugars get processed very quickly, which results in an immediate increase in our blood sugar, which then results in increased level of insulin, which will ultimately always end up in increased body fat. And I promised I wouldn't go too far off into a tangent here, but the simple phrase that fat makes us fat is just too easy to cling to, even though it's incredibly untrue, right? By comparison, fat is a very calorie dense food. There's nine calories per gram of fat where protein and carbohydrates only carry four calories per gram. But just because a food is calorie dense, uh, you know, doesn't mean really anything except help dictate the quantity of that food you should eat. And I know we're going to talk more about the problem with calories and calorie counting in the future. So I won't, I won't spiral off too much more now. That's a, that's a lot of really great information. I love it. And the story of your dad is, is phenomenal. I have to uh, jump over here to a question that we received from Stephanie in Boston. She's asking, are all fried foods bad for you? And I'm going to answer this in two ways. And Rachel, if you want to weigh in with, with an answer yourself, but here's my answer. First of all, what are you frying? Because there's a difference between <laughs> the, you have to look at it two ways. It's not all fried foods are created equal of uh, vegetables. Uh, say, for example, broccoli that's dipped in a batter and fried is very different than uh, chicken fingers from McDonald's. Okay, so, so not all foods are created equal. But if you're deep frying any of this stuff, the answer is yes, all fried foods are bad for you. Just stay away from fried foods. Eat the vegetable that's inside. And I don't know if you had a thought either Rachel. Yeah, I mean I I agree especially when you're talking about fried food that you're getting out somewhere you have to think about the quality of the oil that they're using. I can guarantee it's not a high quality oil. It's also probably been sitting in a fryer for quite some time with multiple different foods going in and out of there. I would say stay away from fried foods from a health standpoint. If you're going to indulge, and this is the advice I give to everyone always when it comes to any classification of food, if your favorite family tradition is going to a carnival and having fried dough and you look forward to that and you do it once a year and it feels special and important, allow yourself to enjoy that experience in that moment, but don't try to convince yourself that eating fried broccoli is a healthy food or eating fried dough is okay if you're standing up, right? It's it's not a health choice. You're making it for other reasons, which is okay. You just want to be honest about those reasons. So Stephanie, hopefully this will answer your question. Uh, you've got it from myself. Do you have it from Rachel? Eat healthier. Stay away from a lot of fried foods. <laughs> okay. Um, so let's see. I want to just uh, recap that uh, the recommended daily allowance for fat for the average American is your fat intake should represent about 20 to 35% of your daily caloric intake, which is about 40 to 70 grams. How do you know how to measure that? Well, again, I'll go back to read the labels that are on the products that you're buying at the uh, grocery store. And uh, just a recap on sources for good fats when it comes to the foods that you eat, I'll mention nuts, avocados. Uh, we've already talked about olive oil and coconut oil, uh, fatty fishes, uh, eggs. 
and naturally raised uh, animal meat proteins, uh, not the kinds that you'll find on concentrated animal feed operation lots. I want everyone to understand that we often think that very large people, you might describe them as fat, are unhealthy, and that's simply not true. Simply because you're fat doesn't necessarily mean you're unhealthy. And I'll give you an example. Here's an example, which it, it doesn't come obviously to, to people. Uh, but when I mention it to them, as I'm going through my educational processes with customers and, and uh, clients, I'll say, have you ever seen a sumo wrestler? Have you ever followed the diets of indigenous peoples who live above the Arctic Circle, for example, their diets consist primarily of fish. And uh, above the Arctic Circle, for example, you're looking at things like uh, liver, uh, blubber, whale blubber, seal fat, uh, very few uh, fruits and vegetables <laughs> grow above the Arctic Circle. Uh, yet there, the incidences of heart disease are really, really low. Uh, and a lot of studies are starting to turn their attention to uh, to the diets of, of these people, including the diets of sumo wrestlers who obviously need to be very large in order to gain an advantage over their opponent. But are they unhealthy? No, I would, I would actually uh, argue that they are probably some of the most healthy people in the world. And our goal is to keep you healthy, not necessarily keep you skinny. Rachel, we're just about at the end of our episode. Did you have anything else you wanted to add? A quick note on to your point of we want to keep you healthy instead of skinny. People get really caught up with the way people look and assume, oh, if you're overweight, you must be unhealthy. If you're skinny, you must be healthy. And there's so much more behind the scenes. And it's important to worry about yourself and your body, not what anyone else is eating or doing or looking like. And not to compromise your health to look a certain way. And I think, you know, we'll dive into that and probably continue to come back to that as a theme. But keeping in mind that, you know, looks can be deceiving. And some of the skinniest people you know could be some of the least healthy people you know, and vice versa. Yeah, uh, I I think that's a, a great closer. And, and yes, we don't want people thinking that you have to be skinny in order to be healthy. Thank you for listening to this episode of Modern Food Thinking with Chef Jerome Pekka and Rachel Lucas, owner of Fueling Strong, and brought to you by Spazia Rosso Interior Design of Greater New England. In our next episode, airing in two weeks, we will discuss fitness supplements and protein powders. Yay! You can listen to this podcast through Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Alexa, through the free app for iOS and Android or wherever you get your podcasts. To sign up for Rachel's private coaching sessions, visit her website at fuelingstrong.com. And to sign up for nutrient-dense and healthy eating classes or general cooking classes with me, call or text 978-399-8966. I am Chef Jerome. And I am Rachel Lucas. Stay well, eat well, be well. <laughs>